On today's episode of A Story in a Chat, I'll be completing the series of conversations about love and its importance in our lives. Today, we'll be hearing a holy man's view on love. It's going to be a good one, so settle in and happy listening. everyone, and welcome to A Story in a Chat, the podcast where you will hear mine and other perspectives on topics that are important to all of us. I am your host, Aisha Iqbal, and I wholeheartedly believe that conversations can bring people together in the most beautiful ways. I've created this space to do just that, and I'm really excited to share this next perspective with you. So let's get started, shall we? Today, I'll be speaking with Suhaib Webb, an American Muslim imam who converted from Christianity to Islam in his early 20s. Born William Webb in Oklahoma to a Christian family, including a grandfather who was a preacher, he started losing interest in religion in his teen years. During that time, he joined a local gang and became a hip-hop DJ and producer. I reached out to Sahib after a short online search for modern Muslim imam, which led me to a CNN article about the 25 most influential American Muslims. There, they described Sahib as the Snapchat imam, and immediately I knew that I needed to chat with him to get his perspective on the importance of love. What is the big deal about love? Well, Islamically, we see love as an obligation. We are obligated to love one another. The prophet said, none of you will believe into paradise until you believe, and none of you will believe until you love one another. And the word actually uses is tahabu, which is a reciprocal word, which means you both have to be receiving and giving love. So we believe it's a key to paradise. And of course, the prophet, peace be upon him, said, none of you will believe until you love for your brother or sister, what you love for yourself. So the idea of love being a key component of being someone who lives well enough in this world to be eligible to live well in the next is like a crux. The prophet also said, if you love someone, you have to tell them you love them. So, you know, there are numerous occasions where he would say to an elderly person, Wallahi, in the book, I love you. To Mu'adh, who was very young, I love you. To his wife, Aisha, publicly, he said, I love her. So, you know, we believe that love is one of the central components of a healthy religious EQ, which we don't talk about enough, right? Someone may have a religious IQ and not have a religious EQ. So those are one of those kind of emotional, and that's why all of the great books of Tasawwuf, you'll find chapters on love. It's one of the major components of a faithful life. So much in what you just said, I never heard growing up in in any of the religious teachings. I'll start with, you have to love in your brother and sister what you love in yourself. Is it, can I interpret that to do unto others as you would want done to you? Is it in the same kind of line as that? Yeah, but here it's like what you would love them to do. Right? So it's a little bit more maybe intense. And and we believe that love is a restorative, recessive power. You know, the prophet uh, in another narration said that there are people who are the chosen ones of God. And they ask him, Man hum wa like, who are they? What do they do? And he said, they are people who love biruhi They love, it's hard to translate this, 
by the spirit of God. And the word spirit here is the same word as the spirit that was breathed into Adam. So the idea is that just as breath brought life to people, love resuscitates and brings life to people. So the centrality of love in the life of people around us is equal to oxygen. And that you touched on something that, you know, maybe it's a different conversation, but there has to be some reform, not necessarily reform in the foundations of what's being taught in Muslim schools, in seminaries, in madrasas. People conflate this issue. Oh, you want to change our religious tradition or you're trying to modify our curriculum. No, no, we're talking about how you teach, the method that you use to teach that tradition, right? The, 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 the educational philosophy of the educator. Is it one which is intimidation? Is it one of, I don't want people to ask questions? Is it one where I get a sense of authority because I'm able to bully a young girl or young man? That has nothing to do with what's being taught. Our criticism, and that doesn't mean that what's being taught is not beyond criticism either, but the bigger challenge now is, as you've said, is we're not finding in many of these places people reflecting prophetic values. One of them being to love people. Yeah. That's, and maybe this is the way I've taken in kind of what I've read in the religions and not just in Islam, but also Christianity and, and the major religions that love from God's perspective or how it is taught is God will love you as long as you continue to do right by God. The minute that you stop doing right by God, you will feel the wrath of God. So the love there seems conditional, but at the same time, we're hearing that God's love is unconditional. So that's one I, mean, I, I think God's love is conditional in certain certain ways. Like that has to be nuanced. Like if we define love as being alive, okay, but did God love Pharaoh? So there has to be, you, you know, some kind of, because what I worry about in, in, in certain, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, forgive me. I worry that when we say unconditional love, and then we don't nuance that there is also a responsibility that has to be present in my commitment to the relationship with God. So love has degrees. So there may be like certain type of love, which is reserved for the believers. There's certain type of love, which is reserved for people who, you know, they might not be saintly people, but they may be struggling with like substance abuse and they stop, right? Uh, there, there may be people who, who deal with certain type of challenges, which are for them like mountains, which for others are easy, and and they are touched by God's love because of their effort, right? So we have to nuance the conversation. Uh, Christianity at times, some forms of Christianity, and this was a debate within the church between the Baptists and the Church of Christ folks, is, is the blood of Jesus now giving you perennial redemption. So I accept Christ, now I can go rob a bank. Right? So that that's, Islam doesn't say that. Islam says, you believe in God, I believe in God, and that is a sign of God's ultimate love, the fact that we believe in him, our hearts are guided, right? But now we have responsibility in any relationship to look after that love and reciprocate it. Can you bring that, that conversation about the degrees of love and the responsibility, I like that, the responsibility of love into the human aspect from one human to the other? 
this notion of unconditional love, what is the responsibility that we hold as the ones being loved and as ones loving? Yeah, I see a little object of love right there, mashallah. Well, I mean, first of all, definitely we could say in a general way, God's love is is unconditional. Even the most heinous human beings still breathe. They don't get an oxygen bill at the end of the month. That love may actually then be later on, we believe in the hereafter, used against them to say, I, I, I provided you with all of the tools and you failed to act responsibly with those tools. So there is a general mercy, right? There is a general benevolence that the creator gives to creation. And then, of course, we divide this into three or four areas. Number one is reciprocating God's love is impossible. But for us as Muslims, we believe that Islam is a vehicle for us to reciprocate, not because God needs our love, but to show our gratitude to God for loving us. So the famous narration of the prophet that nobody comes closer to God with what, which is more beloved to God than what God is obligated upon us, like praying five times a day, fasting. Um, and that includes the second component is now reciprocating God's love in our life to those around us. So we're called as a community in the Quran torches because the torch is traditionally a nomadic form of electricity, which is passed on. From tribe to tribe, hey, our torch is out. Can we, can we light our torch at your place? So love now becomes this kind of transitive verb and transitive action that begins to spread. So I recognize God's love in my life. And instead of getting like arrogant, I then reciprocate. So the famous narration of the prophet, you know, nothing is more beloved to God than seeing the effects of his blessings on you. Meaning you now are generous. You now are kind. You now are just. You now are disciplined, like calling to truth, right? Reminding people of evil. Reminding people that George Floyd didn't die in vain. That's an act of love. Sacrificing oneself, as these young people did across America, even in the face of COVID, right? For the betterment of their country. That is an act of love, religiously, in our tradition. So being kind to spouses, of course, children, family neighbors, but then there is a societal love, which at times, in many ways, what we saw last week was a prophetic sacrifice. Prophets sacrificed themselves for the good of people. So love in that way, and you know, it's interesting, the word for love in Arabic is from the word which is a seed, hab and hub, because love grows and it has to be planted in the right place and it has to be given the right kind of fertilizer and sun and rain, and then it brings fruit. So, so from religious worship then to appreciating people around us and sacrificing when needed is a sign of love. And then this even gets into like environmental justice, economic justice. All of these things can be kind of tied into the notion of, of love. How do we bring that back to ourselves? It's almost easy to define out, outer love, how to show love outside. How do we show love to ourselves? And is that more important yeah. or as important? I think sometimes there is a problem within religious communities, and I can speak specifically about ours. People don't think it's allowed to love themselves. They equate that with narcissism. There's a difference between self-care, loving yourself in a way that allows you to blossom, allows your seed to grow, or being a narcissist. Those are two very different things. 
So the prophet defined that this for us. He said in the Lijasadikari, you, you know, your body has a right on you. Your soul has a right on you. Your family has a right on you. And your Lord has a right on you. So give each one its right. So making sure, and I tell people this, if you can't love yourself, you can't love others, right? If you can't tend to yourself in a healthy way, in a balanced way, it will be hard for you to do that in relationships with people. And, and we see this now in, in relationships within the community, right? So I think learning to kind of have a cheat day, you know, uh, if you're working out, learning to do things that you enjoy, taking some time out to kind of recenter yourself, going to therapy for people, yoga, sports, whatever they need, right? To kind of rekindle and care for themselves, I think is very important. I think the first step is learning about self-care. We don't talk about that because we tend to confuse it with something which is antithetical to religion, which is like hubris and narcissism. Those are two different topics. How does the notion of love change for you after you became a parent? Did anything change? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think I have two other grown children, by the way. So this is, this is my third. I think that you learn to sacrifice more the more children that you have. I think you learn to dig a little deeper and do things for others that you never thought you could do. The other thing that's very important, I learned this from my son, is our children are also constantly reminding of us of our perceived potential. Because in their minds, we're superheroes, right? In their minds, we're like infallible beings, right? So, of course, that's a little bit off and skewed, but they are reminding us unconditionally of our potential. Right. Because like dad, this mom, this. Right. And they're they're like little personal trainers that kind of implicitly are encouraging us to be better people. So I think children remind us of our our fragility because we really can't protect them in the ways that we think we can. Number two is that we learn to sacrifice for them in ways that we probably never thought. We learned this in marriage, too. But children, I think, is a very a much more intense kind of thing because they're they're small and they're not able to kind of communicate with us. And then I think the last point that I talked about is children very much are kind of a an editor of our lives. Like this is what you really should be. Like you should be here. Why are you here? Even though they don't say it that way, because they look at us as like their their examples. And then I think the fourth is that children teach us to let go. Great parents don't incubate, great parents prepare. And that kind of goes back to the madrasa problem, right? That we want to incubate, 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 incubate to the point that we quell critical thinking and critical skills so that when these young people go out of these schools, they're not equipped to handle even their own issues, let alone the environmental issues. So I think also uh, parenting is about loving enough to let go. And that was tough. So with that, and this could be this could be cultural, right? But in Islam, it is said that we need to respect your parents. You need to you need to love your parents, take care of your parents. But culturally, that can be translated into suffocation. That oh, yeah. that you need to stay with me. You need to take care of me as a mother to her son, your wife. I need to. She needs to do this, this, this for me. How how do we take what? Are we, first of all, let me ask, are we translating this differently from what is in the Quran, what is Islamically stated? 
I mean, I think this is culturally based also, as you said, that Islam largely leaves cultures to kind of implement things within their own kind of cultural spaces. I can say within the American kind of, and I can say this as a, because converts, we tend to be like overly zealous, overly passionate. We're still, you know, we read how to ride a bicycle. You guys were born learning how to ride a bicycle. We had to read it. So we're really, oh my gosh, what kind of wheels we're going to use, spokes, you know. So we also are a little bit particularly invested in a way that's unhealthy with our kids. One time my oldest daughter said to me, I'm not a convert like you. Like, I don't have that same kind of passion that you have, right? So I, I wouldn't want to, you know, point at any specific culture. I've seen it in every, every culture. But what I can say is that it successfully fails. When we overparent or we live vicariously through our children, they tend to rebel or they tend, if they don't rebel, they never achieve really their potential because they, they, they feel that they're always, there's a constant editor, there's an editing happening. And we don't teach the power of failure. We teach the fear of failure. You know, the prophet said, if somebody judges and they get it wrong, they get a reward. They get it right, they get two rewards. So he encourages people to try. We, we don't teach failure. We teach a fear of, of, of trying. That's a problem. So most definitely, I would say that we suffocate. Not only, I mean, when I have a 28-year-old contacting me, asking me about a decision that most people learn to make when they're 13 or 14. When I see people having to question, like, should I take this job? Should I marry this person? And they're in their 20s. This is over-parenting. Of course, if they're going to marry Shrek, like anybody, right? Of course, there's going to be legitimate concerns. They bring home Marilyn Manson. I get it. There's a concern, right? But usually what I've seen is that these concerns around marriage most disgustingly are rooted in race, in whiteness, in skin color, in class, in economic status, and not like in the real crucial issues. So you'll find a young girl or a young man whose parents, no, 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 no. And then the person who comes with kind of the bells and whistles that the parents want shows up, they immediately marry the child without the child's permission and the marriage doesn't work. It's a disaster. So yeah, I I think that there is a problem and the mother-in-law doesn't have the right to live in the house of a married couple. In fact, the wife has the right to say who can live. Of course, if someone's mother-in-law doesn't have a place to live and that's a different situation, but just to want to live with the couple, just to control the son for the sake of keeping him from falling in love with his wife, is ridiculous. And the methabs agree that the wife can say, I don't want to live with these people. I want to live with my husband. And that makes a lot of sense. You know, marriage in Islam is about not only physical autonomy, but also spatial autonomy. So there needs to be a little distance for a couple to grow. Uh, Malcolm X said, in-laws are outlaws. Right? So I agree with you on this point. So staying on that point, another cultural thing, what does healthy love look like in a good Islamic marriage? You know, I had an elder tell me that any anyone who loves in a healthy way loves enough to keep others valued without sacrificing their own value, right? In the sense of destroying their value. Like we all sacrifice things a little, right? In a marriage, but he's like a, a smart husband. He told me, uh, older black 
uh, convert brother from years ago said, a smart husband knows how to love his wife enough that she gets what she wants and he gets what he wants. Right? That they they maintain that balance. So I think that's where is how do we, and this is one thing I ask people to think about in any relationship, but in a marriage or whatever, like how do I bring value to you? How do you bring value to me? Not only do I, how do I export value? How do I import value? I, 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 you know, shudder when I hear religious speakers saying, you know, marriage is about sacrifice. No, marriage is about receiving, right? It's not just sacrifice. That's, that's certainly a component, but it's also about getting. So there's, there's this mutual, um, I think, beautiful kind of language that happens. And that's why I think it's important for young people and old people even you know, to visit, see a premarital counselor. And even if your marriage is going great, every once in a while, check in with a family therapist and see, hey, because patterns come into relationships really quickly and they come very subtly. If we don't pay attention to them, then those patterns become a problem. So then those patterns, what starts, everything starts from the home, right? Before anything, any big change that we want to make in the world, we should first make within ourselves within our homes, and then we can move outwards. So the last last question I want to ask is, what would a world without love look like? Are we kind of seeing that happen now with the protesting and the, and the virus? No, because I think the protesting is an act of love, right? That's an act of, of tremendous. I mean, you see young people and even some of these older folks who are... are Definitely the 75-year-old man in Albany, New York, who was berated by the president. You know, his percentage of death with COVID is considerably high based on his age demographic. What would motivate him to go out and and protest, obviously, is hopefully is love, right? I don't think we're in a loveless world. I think we have to be careful of cynicism. I think there are people who want us to believe this is a loveless world. On the far left and on the far right, because they are able to kind of generate a message of authority based on the world is falling apart. There's no love, but we see whether it's the Yemeni restaurant owner in New York, who's feeding people, whether it was the Imam in New York who delivered 5,000 masks to hospitals, whether it was a community, I can speak about New York city who within a month raised about $1.4 million for the city's poor. So I think you have Islah in LA under Imam Jihad who, Masjid Taqwa in Brooklyn, these were all feeding people, even during the COVID crisis in New York City in particular, and in LA. So I just think we see what we want to see. But if we look for love, and, and, and this president, unfortunately, hopefully he's an anomaly. I don't like to give politicians too much power. I think the problem with him is that everyone covers him because he's a fool. He's an exhibition right? He's an unabated, untethered human being. He says what he wants about people and he has no decorum. And certain people like that, right? It, it, it feeds into their pharaonic psyche. But he's covered so much that we are now like accepting bad behavior. Like if Donald Trump was in my classroom, he would be in the corner, right? Or he'd be out in the hall. He's every day saying something about women Black people, minorities, religious groups, even his perceived allies, right? He's saying things which we would not say in front of our children, nor would we want our children or even ourselves to hear. So there is a challenge of character 
that is caused by the Trump exhibition and those who align with him. We elected a president who made fun of a person with MS. That is who is the president of the United States. So that that constant barrage may cause people, and I think it's one of the greatest ploys of Trump, is to get people to feel like there's no way you can overcome this. This is just what it is. And I think these protests are not only about, you know, the irony of, of George Floyd saying, I can't breathe in COVID being a respiratory illness. That affects how you breathe, right? And, and I think that you had this kind of intersection of Generation Z and millennials, Generation X and baby boomers that just realized, you know, the system is failing and it's failing black people. So it's failing all of us. We have people in power who don't love. So we need, we need, it's a, Nas has a great song called, unfortunately, there's some parts in that are problematic, but it's a war on love. There's like a war on love. So we should, as the Quran says, right? push back with what's better. Let's push back with love. Love doesn't mean I always have to be nice. Right? Love means I can speak in a, a prophetic voice and say, this is wrong. And I think many people, although they might not have done it in a prophetic inspiration, I think what we're seeing is a reaction largely based on love. Like, this is not how we want our world to look with these kind of leaders. So they're pushing back. And they're pushing back on Biden, too. I mean, the entire establishment and and some of the suspect positions of the right and the left, especially the establishment right and left, I think their days are numbered. So I lied. One, one last question. Do you think Trump is an example of a person who's not experienced love in his life as a child or even as an adult? I don't know. I don't know his history. And I, I wouldn't want to judge, you know, his parents. I don't know what his, his family and the people around him, his wife. I think we need to hold him responsible. He's a he's a 70-something-year-old man, right? I mean, he He's someone now, hopefully, who would be able to say, yeah, I've gone through certain challenges, but at this age, I ultimately am responsible for my own behavior. I think that he is kind of a sign of the dangers of populism, the dangers of not being nuanced and using discernment in kind of thinking about who leadership belongs to. Like, what is the character of a leader? I don't see any any remorse or any empathy for, for people, right? In fact, it's, it's misplaced. And it speaks to a certain type of psychological state, which is rooted in like machoism and this kind of misguided machismo. And, you know, yeah, I don't know. I have no well, idea. I like that. I like that answer because it shows there's hope. There's always hope that no matter what you've come from, you always have a choice of either continuing that way or changing it for yourself, giving yourself love if you didn't receive it in the way that you wanted. So that's where the conversation of self-love that we had. So that's, that's a hopeful answer, even with the example of Donald Trump, that love can be injected anywhere by yourself, by others that you choose to surround yourself with. Most definitely. So, hey, thank you so much for your time. You. I know you have to run. This is an amazing conversation, and I look forward sure. to seeing more of your goodness in the world. You too. Thank you. 
I hope you enjoyed the finale of my series on the importance of love. The whole point of this podcast has been to create conversations about important topics and share different perspectives on them. These last few episodes have been especially important because having love in these times is so important. Before signing off, I want to take a moment to reflect on these conversations and bring it back to my everyday. I started this series by first talking about how having my daughter really changed my whole view on love and my experience with it. These conversations with Teek, Sonali, and Saheb have helped to further expand my understanding and experience with love. From Teek Milan, I'm taking away the important understanding that anger and love can coexist in the same space. As a parent, even when my daughter is working my very last nerve, I'm still overflowing with love for her while going off on her. As a human, anger can sometimes fuel the activism I do, which I do because I have love for other humans. From Sonali Dave, I'm taking away that feelings and emotions are better shown with vivid and not muted colors. There is a type of courage we practice when we allow ourselves to live so boldly. As a parent, I will always welcome my daughter with ridiculous squeals of joy when she wakes up from a nap. As a human, I will let other humans know how much I appreciate them and not hold back on how I do that. Which means, if you ever see me in person and we get along, expect a hug from me. Hashtag hugger. From Sahabe Webb, I'm taking away that there is always an opportunity to bring love into your life. No matter what our previous experiences have been, either without love or with hurtful love, we have the power to course correct for ourselves and fill our lives with the kind of love that will help us thrive. Thank you for listening to today's episode of A Story in a Chat with me, your host, Aisha Iqbal. If you've enjoyed any of the conversations you've heard here, please consider writing a review saying as much and share this out as a gift to others in your circle. I wish you a clear mind and an open heart so you can live your full truth in this wonderful world of ours. Signing off for now. Toodles! Toodles!